Welcome back to The Big Desk, the podcast by teachers, for teachers, and anybody that ever had a teacher. I'm Scott Brown. We've been on a bit of hiatus. Uh, we haven't done a show for several months. I've been busy teaching, and since our last podcast, Dave helped coach Bishop Dwinger at a state football championship. Talk about that a little bit, Dave. How that, fun was that? That was something else. I mean, there's a couple records set in that game. Uh, least amount of points scored in regulation, 0-0. Most overtimes in the longest game ever in the state history, time-wise. Uh, four overtimes. And I'm guessing maybe the most field goals missed. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> Dave's the field goal kicker, oh. coach. But <laughs> uh, uh, We talked about that at halftime and uh, at various times throughout the game. But, uh, and but, the thing but is, you won. Yeah, we won. And that the kicker was 16 for 17 this year with two field goals of 41 and 39. And both of these were uh, under 25 away. But being in a game, yeah. that's a tense situation. Heck, yeah. Especially yeah. at 0-0. Zero, zero. Yeah. Well, today our guest is a gentleman who taught next door to me for the first half of my career at Northside. He's a true shop guy, a guy who loved to have dirt underneath <laughs> his fingernails, John Bill. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here with uh, you guys that I had so much uh, fun working with for a number of years. Sure Again, did. I just want to start out and say in the... Uh, your guys' office was the best office <laughs> I ever uh, went into. I would, uh, I had fourth period plan, last period planning uh, a couple years being head coach in soccer, and I would go down there and take naps. And it was cool, it was dark, and nobody knew you were there. <laughs> mm-hmm. So thank you guys very much. The only Absolutely. problem was a little bit of cigarette smoke coming in from the smoking area. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. That right was outside <laughs> our office door, but that's another story. Um, I would start out my mornings almost every day sitting in room 159 with john kind of just solving world problems having a cup of coffee and i learned a lot from john uh john was one of my teachers and um it's a pleasure to work with him john your background you went to south um and actually you're our fourth south side alum to be on our show mm-hmm. uh then you went to purdue um did you originally go to purdue to become a teacher no okay nope started out in uh engineering like a lot of uh students at Purdue and uh, while I was there uh, discovered industrial education or industrial arts teaching and I had real good experience in industrial arts both in what was then called junior high school at Abbott junior high and at Southside and I just felt like I'd really found my niche there. So you wanted to work with people and engineering was more of a sit by yourself type of thing or not? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think it had a lot to do with, with uh, <laughs> and I don't mean this in a bad way, but the, the type of people that go into engineering, um, no. I really <laughs> felt a little more akin to uh, those that might be in, interested in education plus education ran in my family my mother was an educator for uh, 40 years or so and and uh, uh, I knew what that was like and uh, it was a very good profession so when um, you made this change how far were you into your college career just two years okay Mm -hmm. so um, you left Purdue did was Northside your first teaching job no Um, after I got my bachelor's degree at Purdue, uh, down on their campus, 
why well, I, uh, I wanted to start my master's right away because I knew this was what I wanted to do. And uh, I got a job with the Frontier School Corporation, which was about 15 miles north of Purdue University up in uh, Chalmers and Brookston right. area. Yeah. And so I taught there one year, and after that was offered uh, a job at Northside High School, and I just couldn't turn that down. And they had a wonderful facility there. And I started at Northside, would have been in the fall of 1968, and was there for 33 years. What was it like at Northside in the late 60s? Oh, it was fantastic. It, uh, the school had not been renovated at all at that time. It was just like it was when it was originally built. and uh, Which was 1926? 20, 26. 26. 26. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a huge school at that time because this was time before Northrop and Wayne had opened up. So I think we had uh, twenty. 4 hundred students or something like that in, three in the building. Grades, right? Yeah, and three that grades. was you're right. That was in 10 through 12. Yeah. Freshmen were still in the middle schools. And uh it, it was crowded to the extent where we had up staircases and down staircases and things like that. A lot of traffic. There were uh lockers that extended into the hallways so that made the hallways very narrow down the 20 corridor and the 30 corridor and so forth <laughs> so it was uh but it worked everything seemed to work very well and uh, uh they had a wonderful industrial arts facility and I, I would have to say um i had a a great department head uh, bob edwards who was a really really good gentleman with the right attitude and everything and it was very helpful to me in my career yeah i've often one of my shout outs one time was for bob and what a gentleman that's the perfect description of bob edwards mm -hmm. i mean he had a firm hand but a loving heart and kids knew that he cared about them right and i mean he did everything the right way yeah. so what classes were offered industrial arts back in the late 60s when i first started there there was um, metalworking, which was my area, and that was uh, in an area underneath what would be kind of the east end of the gymnasium at that time. And then the rest of the shops were down the 130 corridor. So you had where the math, where which the math department, which was where the really? math department is. Yeah. So you had drafting, woodworking and uh power mechanics and electricity electronics did they ever have an auto shop no north okay. never because that was like the classic 50s 60s mm -hmm. no none of, of none of the high schools um in fort wayne other than central's vocational right. school uh had any kind of auto shop well back then teenagers worked on their own cars because it was so simple right Right. So um, then what year did you retire from North? Uh, 2001. Okay. All right. In the, in the right at the end of the school year. So your whole career at North was medals. I know at the end you got a little bit of drafting, a little bit of graphic arts, but yeah. medals is what you're known for. 
I would think so, yeah. So what are some of your uh, fond memories of teaching metals to kids at Northside? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I, I think the fondest memory is, is when students would come into the room on the first day of school, those that were beginning students, and they would look around and they'd see all this machinery and equipment. And uh, fortunately, just about through my whole career, uh, our department was very well um, funded, I guess you'd say, by the, the school system in that uh, we had really good equipment, a lot of uh, different areas. In metalworking, for example, we had a machine shop, we had a foundry, we had welding, we had uh, sheet metal, we had heat treatment, all these different things. And students would come in and they would look at all this stuff and you could just see in their eyes like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what did I sign up <laughs> <Yeah>. for? <laughs> um, but as you would begin to show them how these things worked and what could be done on these, and you would just kind of see them light up a little bit and mm -hmm. say, hey, this, this is really pretty cool. Yeah. Um, that, that would be kind of my fondest memory, just seeing kids tune into to the wonders of metalworking and, and other, other areas of industrial arts as well. Like we've talked about this on other past podcasts that, that – what a shame that it's not there today. I had oh, a kid who designed two pieces of cabinet that I mounted on my wall that kept all my um, films when I taught social studies. And it was a piece of work. And the kid ended up going into carpentry. Uh, it's too bad. Yeah. Well, to get your hands on something, uh, I think we had a saying uh, you can tell me about something, and, and I may remember it or might forget it. Um, you can show me how to do something and be the same way, but once I do it myself, I'm going to remember that. Yeah, and yeah. so many kids at Northside, and not just Northside, but the other, other schools too, but at Northside especially, because I think we were kind of the cutting edge of filling up a department and mm -hmm. offering a lot to kids. That was the highlight of their day is that class or Absolutely. classes. And a lot of kids may have dropped out of school if they didn't have a class like that to go to. Mm -hmm. And whoa, that was... Whoa, whoa. You mean geometry wasn't yeah. right up there too? <laughs> well, for a very small percentage of them, yes. geometry was I'll the highlight of their day. <laughs> well, to do that, Dave, though, I, I think that was the neat thing about what we taught whether it be drafting or woodworking or metalworking, it involved a lot of math. Yes. And I can remember with my advanced students showing them how trigonometry works so that they could finger, figure angles for cutting and stuff like that. So it was... But, and that, that's something people don't know, that you guys didn't just teach the art. You taught the math behind it, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. yeah, there's no way to get around it. Yeah. That's right. Um, I'm gonna ask you to tell a couple stories that are some of my favorites, and one of them was about a <laughs> here we go. <laughs> okay, about a kid who came up to your desk um, with a bloody nose because of something that happened back in the uh, welding area with your shop assistant. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, people start paying attention. Yeah. Let's see. Okay. I'm trying to think. Okay, uh, which 
Doug, Long, Doug Longley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I used to have some uh, shop assistants, it, and the the class the classroom was pretty good sized in the metalworking area, and. Uh, we would have students working in all areas at any given time. So you'd have students in the foundry, students working on the machines, students welding, and back in the welding area, why that was a kind of a dark hole corner in that room, and it had a good ventilation system. Well, every once in a while, you'd get some kid that wanted to go back there and have a smoke, <laughs> and. Uh, I'd always tell my shop assistants, keep, keep your eyes open for that. If you see that, why, let me know. Well, one day, uh, one of my shop assistants uh, saw some smoking going on back there, and he decided just to take it in his own hands and not bother <laughs> me. <laughs> so apparently, he got in a little, uh, a little match with this student, and... Um, the student came out on the worst end, and he came up complaining to me about getting punched in the nose. And I well, what happened? Well, uh, I was smoking back there, and I got caught, and punched me. Um, speaking of smoking, um, we did have the smoking area down outside of our doors, and in the winter, that door would be open and that smell would come down through <laughs> yeah, there and yeah and i know you had a couple different stories kids just couldn't wait to get out and smoke and a lot of times yeah. i often wondered if that's why they took our classes because of the proximity <laughs> to, <laughs> the to the smoking, the smoking area, area. Yeah, yeah yeah um uh -huh. i remember one where um you uh helped a kid cut his smoking in half oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well even though that we had a a school approved smoking area out in the parking lot um, I still told the students I don't want to see cigarettes in this class you know if you if they're in your pocket you keep them in your pocket you're not you don't have them out on the top of your desk playing with the pack waiting to get out there as soon as the bell rings and um, so one day a student apparently forgot what I told him and he had a pack of cigarettes out there and I no, you can't do that. Let's have them. And he says, you can't take those away from me or something to that effect. And I said, I'm, I'm going to give them back to you. Don't, don't worry about it. But I'm going to show you how you can cut your smoking in half, which <laughs> would be good for you. So I took him back to the bandsaw and <laughs> took his pa fresh pack of cigarettes, <laughs> ran it through the uh, bandsaw um, crossways. <laughs> Besides that, I, f I felt like I was doing him a favor because, you know, they only have five minutes between class. You can't smoke a whole cigarette anyway. So now he got 40 smokes out of that pack instead of 20. But only 20 were filtered. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, being that we've known each other so long and, and, and have various uh, associations in and outside uh, that i've heard that before but every time you bring it up it just cracks me up because that's the way it was back then yeah kids, that's, that's true 
Yeah. That's true. It was it was a lot different in those yeah. days. Yeah. And and yeah. in some ways better because yeah. you could mm-hmm. do what you had to do and and seconds later, okay, well that's just part of the gig, you know. Yeah. And the problem was solved. You know, <laughs> yes. was, I never saw You don't have to send them to the office. The, yeah. yeah. We, we no, solved it. Right. We solved a lot of our own problems right down there. I remember the kid who had the cigarette in his hand and you ask him, can you give that to me? And you're talking to him and you're giving him a lecture and he says, well, can I have it back now? And the whole time you were grinding it up in your hand. <laughs> and so when you gave it back to him, it was just a bunch of tobacco and ripped up paper. <laughs> Um, for, for you new teachers out there, uh, please don't follow our, our example. Right. Uh, one of my favorite John Bill stories was um, with the kid who had the, back in, gosh, I don't know when this would have been, I guess it would have been in the early to mid-90s, and um, Mohawks were kind of coming into vogue with the sort of punk rock thing and, and we're not talking one inch no no this shy. is this we're is a spiked a spiked mohawk right. with a lot of gel in it so it just went no hair on the sides and just a very thin blade basically going up the top of his head and uh tell the story about the kid that you talked to <laughs> in the hallway well this, as i remember this, this was a good kid yes yeah he was a good kid a likable guy and uh Sometimes you tease those you like. Yes. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I knew he would go along with this. So, anyway, he had this spiked up hair, probably came up at least six inches down the center of his head, and the rest of his head was pretty much shaved. And um, I said, asked him, I said, what are you doing this weekend? <laughs> and um, this was in the... Late springtime. In fact, I think school is about over with. And uh, he says, oh, I don't know why. What? I said, well, uh, I'm going up Lake this weekend, and we've got a sailboat up there, and I'm, I've been having trouble with the rudder, and I was hoping maybe uh, you might want to come along up there, and we could use that hairdo of yours to s- steer the boat. Uh, fortunately, he saw the humor. Yeah, okay, okay. yeah, and uh, and I think yeah. and Scott was there with yeah. me. Um, that was uh, that's the that's what I love. I still love about teaching is being able to joke around with kids and mm-hmm. knowing the kids you can joke around with. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you go maybe a little bit overboard, or a kid doesn't take it well. But most of the time, yeah. you, yes. you know the kids enough that you can joke with them, mm-hmm. and that's how relationships are formed I mean, it's not just walking in and taking attendance and shipping them out in the period and right. i think that you as well as everybody in our department had yeah. great relationships with both the yeah. men and women because we had a lot of girls that took classes down yeah. there i might add that when we when i mentioned this to this kid this was out in the hall right not in front of the yes. rest yes. of the classroom yeah. which would yeah. make a difference sure sure now i know there are a couple guys in my graduating class um pat murphy and uh, Steve Schmidt that would call you their favorite teacher at Northside and a mm-hmm. lot of others would as well um, are there students that you still keep in touch with either through social media or in person that you had at Northside mm-hmm. absolutely uh, what we call social media uh, friends with well you met yeah. mentioned Pat Murphy yeah. and and uh, he's always got some good posts on there yeah. and enjoy reading and other students as well um, 
you run into them all the time. I know you guys do too, and somebody will come up to you, and maybe they're bald or gray-haired and <laughs> say hey yeah. it's mr bill how are you doing and then you look at them, you have no idea who they yes, are because yeah. they've changed so much since high school right and uh that's always fun and, and sometimes you try to cover it up and, and sometimes i just say hey yeah when'd you graduate yeah okay. and, and what's your name again <laughs> because but i think some of the older ones come up to me and they'll introduce themselves yeah. first right which thank you, you know, yeah so. i used to tell my students that on the last day of school i said you know that especially those that are graduating i said you know we might run into each other sometime yeah. you know always tell me who you are because after this <laughs> this school year is yeah. over i'm flushing these things <laughs> and I, I gotta add a couple of hundred more sometimes so. we met him saw him outside of school while they were still in high school unfortunately some of those times we're in a bar right well then didn't was pat with you and you made the the mr bill video safety oh, yeah. videos yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> yeah that was the uh, of course the famous mr bill character on saturday night live and uh, we decided to cash in on that or <laughs> promote it anyway so uh, we made a videotape teaching aid, the Mr. Bill Safety in the Metal Shop show, <laughs> where we made, or mostly Pat Murphy made, uh, Play-Doh dolls, just like they used on Saturday Night Live. And then we'd uh, subject this, these dolls to all <laughs> kinds of horrible things that could happen to you in the metal shop if you didn't follow the safety rules, which were important. And I, I can remember teaching safety to students because it is very important. And until we made that tape, you know, they were all sitting around looking bored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, boy, they would watch that. Yeah. And it, it we took these dolls and, like, had them um, – had mr bill run the grinder without uh, wearing safety glasses oh no yeah. <laughs> right and we had some girl i think it was i can't remember who it was for sure that had that oh no voice yeah. and <laughs> she would dub in the sound on this yeah. stuff and a couple of spikes would gouge mr bill's <laughs> eyes out and then we had another one worried uh got caught in a milling machine cutter and got all ground up in the machine and and uh ran a started up a lathe with a key in the chuck and the key hit him in the head and uh, there was like a dozen different situations that was one example of the uniqueness of our staff that we'd go outside the box to do stuff like this and mm -hmm. i think well the staff appreciated it with each yeah. other uh, <laughs> yeah. and the kids did too because yeah. it was something that was educational but hey we don't have to be dull and boring uh, about this yeah that was one of the next things i wanted to bring up is the guys you worked with in the department um if i could add one yeah. thing yeah 
about the Mr. Bill Show. We entered that in a teaching aids contest that was sponsored by the Indiana Industrial Technology Association and won first place. There you go. And we took, took, I think, the $50 award or something. We took everybody that was involved in that, including our good friend Ted Crum, who was the audiovisual director at that time, who was you know really key person in in this production and we all went out and had pizza one day for lunch (laughs) nice thank you nice (laughs) so um when i was there or with you at north our department was pretty much the same guys but there was a period right before i got there where there was kind of a revolving door and lots of different guys went in there how did the what are some uh, common things and some changes you notice in the department over all the time you were there Wow. Um, the, the apartment, the department always had some strengths, that's for sure. Uh, Bob Edwards, uh, Dick Ward, I remember. Um, we had some great drafting instructors in there. Uh, we had a number of them, but they were all good. Uh, but then we kind of settled into the, f- the five of us. Yeah. And I was really felt blessed to be at Northside with the support that we got from the administration for our department because most other high schools were down to two, three teachers, and we had five. And and for being a – when you're teaching um, classes that are elective like ours are, (laughs) uh, numbers are extremely important. But uh, Dan Weyer comes to mind, of course, Chris Schwartzkopf, and um well steve oh yeah steve smothers so the five of us i don't know how many years together but and it we all taught some different things we weren't used to teaching Mm -hmm. i mean when the graphic arts thing opened up and chris came in and then um, when chris left and went to dwanger i mean you taught some graphic arts i taught some Mm -hmm. graphic arts um, dan taught graphic arts uh, drafting in the age of computers when that yeah, came in, yeah. big had, change. We added the CAD. You taught some drafting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you had two of your three kids went to Northside, and Dave sent his son to Northside, and Ed sent his kids to Northside. Um, what was that like having daughters there? I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really did. Um, I think it was a good made even for a stronger bond between definitely the two because you knew what was going on um the uh go to school together in the morning and then uh, at the end of the day the daughter would come down and hang out and <laughs> shop yep. and yep. and uh we just it worked out real well yeah me too and i probably have told this on this podcast before but the first day i took my son in this freshman year and we're going in i said well can we talk about if you get approached about being my son he says i, I got that covered i said what do you mean so well i'm just going to say it's not my fault he's my dad <laughs> <laughs> and it worked <laughs> no. but yeah that was I, I got to see i think i know i got to see a lot more things greg was in because he was in mm-hmm. my school absolutely uh, from uh, well, he also played soccer for me too. That was a big yeah. thing, and and music, and mm-hmm. I mean, just. And I had a few uh, teachers that weren't afraid to come down and complain about my kids yeah. to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
<laughs> which was a good thing to yeah. know about. Yeah. So um, there are a couple guys I work with, and they, they always come up to me and they say, um, do you have a, a plumbing guy or do you have a heating and air conditioning guy? And there, I do have people that I – friends I've made throughout time that have done do these things for me. But if I were to describe you, I'd have to say you're my car guy because when I have a car question, I can always call you. And I know cars are a huge part of your life. Um, Growing up in the late 50s, or being a teenager in the late 50s, early 60s, it was a great time to be a car guy, Absolutely. I'm sure. So I guess my question is, do you think that if you were born in a different era, would you still have the love for cars or the connection to cars, or do you think that that era spurned that? I think it's the era that did yeah. that, sure. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, uh, being born right at the very end of world war ii when there was a shortage of cars and and when anybody got a car it was a huge deal and for a little kid that gets imprinted on you about i, I can never remember not being interested in cars really? down to the age of three really and um it's just been a some people might say a lifetime obsession with me um but it's in a way it paid off mm -hmm. because after my 33 years of work at Northside, i um, went to the auburn Cordusenberg automobile museum in auburn indiana as the uh, first as the director of education and archives and spent 17 and a half years there so how were you able to tie the metal shop in your professional life to the cars in your personal life well there's i suppose you could say there's a lot of parts on cars that are made out of metal mm -hmm. um, didn't you make some in the foundry at any time oh sure yeah yeah and sure. so that's something i didn't and and i i grew up around cars too but not mm -hmm. like you did i'm a little bit younger but my dad owned was parcel owner of the filling station sinclair station on the corner of jacobs and and clinton right mm -hmm. around the bend and so we would go over there and pump gas and work when we were 14 15 years old yeah. uh, but but our era i mean it was it wasn't quite as i mean i had a 56 chevy that you could crawl in and and take out parts i mean right. the distance <laughs> between the block and and the yeah and the dog house was enough you could get in and and now i open my car up my equinox and you can't even see the engine because it's right. all covered right but and if you if you're working on it and you drop a tool yeah <laughs> it doesn't come out the bottom anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's just it's stuck it's lost somewhere in another land forever <laughs> what was your first car my first car was a 1952 ford two-door sedan with a later model ford v8 engine in it it was what you know the stereotypical hot rod of yeah. a teenager i got it when i was 16 years old student at Southside. yep did uh <clears throat> so you've owned lots of different and a lot of classic cars and you've restored cars tell us about some of the different cars you've owned and then oh, we'll gosh. get into a little detail on some of them let's see how long is this show <laughs> what was um, your favorite <laughs> start with that one because i think i know what it was all right my favorite yeah well that's that would be tough, Dave, okay. to to really pin down okay. to a favorite one. 
Um, but I think you're thinking about my 49 Mercury. Yes, I am. Yeah. Yes, I, I am. I had a, a chopped 49 Mercury two-door sedan that uh, was done old-school style that was uh, really a lot of fun. And I had that for oh, about 15 years or so. And we, we had a lot of fun with that. And I know you guys might say the Hudson. Mm-hmm. We had a 52 I Hudson we used to call too. a Superdome. Right. <laughs> that thing was so big inside. <laughs> it was huge. My, my daughter, Jenny, uh, she would drive it also. In fact, she's the one that wanted to buy it so she could drive it. She could get herself and seven of her yes. friends in the car. I had the Bel Air in college, and we got eight people in one yeah. time. I mean, it was, they were that big. Yeah. And I remember one time uh, I was down at the Blue Mountain Cafe. Oh, yeah. And I parked the Hudson outside on Columbia Street. And uh, as I was walking in the door, a bunch of girls were running out, and they saw the car, and they said, oh, Jenny Bill's down here. <laughs> <laughs> so that was uh, not only something I <laughs> – it was my trademark for my daughters as well. Well, the Merc was my favorite yeah. of all yours. And Thank you. You had a special blocking system on that. Oh yeah, and oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's a story with one of Scott's yeah. son, I believe. No, it was Wire's son. Oh, yeah. Wire's son. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah this thing had electric doors on it that were operated by remote control, and, and there were no handles on it. Yeah, and there were no outside door handles on the car. They had been removed to give the car a more sleek look. But I carry this little button in my pocket. They're, they're common today, you know, a remote trunk release sure, right. or something. But this was, you got to think, back in the mid-'80s or yeah. so. This was unusual. And uh, I could punch that button, and the door would pop open. And one day we were, I think Scott and you and I, were uh, coming out of Dan's house. Yeah. And his son Chase was out there. Chase was in what would you oh, say? Guy, maybe second or third grade. Yeah, he's pretty little, six, seven, eight years old. <clears throat> and he was kind of in awe of the car. And uh, we're walking up to it, and I said, "Open Sesame." And no, I he said, "Open Mercury." Oh, oh yeah, was okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Open <you>. Mercury. <laughs> Open Mercury. And I hit the button in my pocket, and the door pops open. <laughs> And Chase looks at us and, how'd you do that? I said, oh, I've got a, it, here's my voice when I come up. If it hears me say, open Mercury, it, the door opens. So I close the door again and I say, open Mercury. And I hit the button and the door pops open. And he says, well, would that work for me? And I said, well, yeah, probably. <laughs> so we get in the car, Scott's in the in the the uh, passenger side there and we're getting ready to pull away and chase yells open mercury <laughs> and scott opens the door from the inside you know and say no we're gonna drive away quit doing don't Stop. do that and make the door open <laughs> he ran out the street he's following us down Dorside drive yelling open mercury and we're, we're opening the doors quit it we're trying to drive <laughs> i i I've adapted that to my car and my grandkids now. Because, oh, really? Because I have an automatic starter. And oh, okay. So it'll come out and 
start. I said, well, you got to beep first. So you beep it close and then start. And they just giggle. Yeah. Just <laughs> giggle now. But that thanks to you. <laughs> so you got out of Northside. You got a love for cars and the perfect retirement of teaching. But another full-time job popped into your lap. Uh, tell us about working up at the museum. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the in let's see, in 1988, uh, I had loaned my Studebaker Vani, which was a well-restored car, to the museum because they wanted to have one on display. They requested it, and I thought, well, I hadn't been doing a whole lot with the car, so okay. So that kind of opened the door to the museum uh, to me, and about ten years after that the museum started an expansion plan where they were going to put in some new exhibit areas, uh, a banquet hall, some conference rooms, and they were also going to have an education area in there. And the uh, CEO of the museum at the time, a gentleman by the name of Bob Sabarge, he asked if I would want to be on the education committee for the museum to uh, work up some educational activities for for visitors, uh, mainly uh, elementary and high school students. So I could see as this construction was going <laughs> along on this that they were probably going to need some type of individual to direct these activities. And I was still enjoying teaching at Northside like I always had, but I thought, well, if this is an opportunity and at this fantastic, you know, world-renowned museum, uh, maybe I ought to pursue that, which I did, and uh, was fortunate enough to be hired. And I spent 10 years there as uh, director of education and archives, and then the last three years as a curator. And I, I gotta say, People that it, it was a, a high point of my career was working with that because we got to travel to a lot of concours de elegances with cars. Uh, you know, I've probably been fortunate enough to drive well a number of Duesenbergs. Not own them, of course. Right, but, right. <laughs> but still, uh, show them off for people. That and kind of thing. You got to meet some pretty famous people, too. That we did. Um, Dan Aykroyd. Yes, that's the one I want to hear. Sticks out yeah. in my mind most. <laughs> he showed, he was, he, uh, people may know he's from Canada. And he owns a company that manufactures some high-end vodka. The Skull? That's it. The, the, yeah, the, the vodka and yeah, the Skull. Crystal Skull or yes, something yes. like that? Yes, not yeah, that I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we're, we're working in the museum one night, moving some cars in, and a guy comes up to the back door, and he says, uh, you're going to think I'm crazy, but uh, Dan Aykroyd's looking through the front window of the museum out there on the sidewalk and would like to know if he could come in and look around a little bit. <laughs> like, 
oh yeah well <laughs> tell him to come on around here and i'll talk to him did figure. you believe him or did you think i wasn't him? sure okay. you know, okay. you know, yeah. who would say that yeah but yeah. so you kind of think well maybe there's something to this and sure enough here comes dan Aykroyd. there's no mistaking him yeah yeah and he's a car guy and they were on their way from canada down to the opening of a liquor store in indianapolis in this big black suv thing and he had a couple of gentlemen with him and uh so we invited him in showed him around a little bit and and he was just the most gracious individual and knowledgeable it was really fun to meet him of course, Jay Leno. Yeah, I thought, thought you yeah, Jay Leno there. too. Uh, the great race car driver Phil Hill, who's won Grand Prix races and stuff. I've met him. Uh, uh, Tom Smothers. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, he was uh, uh, also a car guy, huh. and uh, came in one time and just yeah, there's celebrities, uh, quite a few. Okay. Um. On a personal note, uh, I'm, I'm I'm kind of in awe of you, and let me explain why. Because on my <laughs> yeah, I'd like to know why. Too, <laughs> <don't> <laughs> <I>? <laughs> well, for various reasons, oh, but oh. Okay, but, <laughs> but uh, on my bucket list is I'm going to write a book about Sherlock Holmes. I haven't done it yet. I've started it ten, twelve times, or different of it. And I know you've written a couple books through Auburn. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about those. Well. Um, if I knew I was going to be writing books, I would have paid attention in English class when I was in high school, I'll tell you that. It saved me a lot of time later on in, my, in life. But uh, when I started there at the museum in archives, which is paper material, right. two-dimensional things, mostly photographs, we found this fantastic treasure trove of about 5,000 photographs, mostly factory photographs of Auburn's Cords and Duesenbergs. And at that time, there were no current books in publication on any of these three marks. So um, I thought, you know, museum ought to publish these books. We got a gift sh shop down there. They could sell them. The museum could make some money on this. So that's what we did. We contracted with a publisher called Iconographics, and they had a photo archive series, which just fit in perfectly with what I wanted to do. And we wrote three books to start with, one on Auburn, one on Cord, one on Duesenberg. And they would have, they'd be about 135 pages long, have a usually a big photograph of a car on a page, and then about a, anywhere from 100 to 150 word caption that would uh, explain what was going on. And I'd try to weave a little story into the caption so that it all fit together. Cool. And then we did another one, uh, Auburn Corps Duesenberg Racers and Record Setters, because uh, all three of those marks had their uh, roots in racing so that was a fun book to write which was uh, was able to use a lot of photographs that nobody had ever seen before 
what was your question again? Just some of the <laughs> books. You did one on the history of car building places or shops in Indiana, or was that just one? There's a map on the wall up there? or Oh, yeah. There's a big map of Indiana on the wall. Uh, Indiana at one time was the second largest producer of automobiles in the United States, second to Michigan. And there were actually over 150 different companies. Yeah, that's what I couldn't believe. Uh, in the state of Indiana, of course, some of them maybe only built 10 cars and then went belly up. But uh, there were a number of companies, and that was uh, some stuff that we used to. Uh, we wrote some um, chapters for the uh, book that was published by the State of Indiana Historical so- Society for the Indiana's 200th the Bicentennial. Oh. And that there was some stuff in there too. My my son uh, had his wedding reception up there, uh-huh. and I was unfamiliar with the facilities. And I said, "Really? Okay." And my dad was a car freak, having owned a gas station, and he and his brother back in the '30s built their own motorcycle. So he was oh, in cars wow. all his all his life. Uh, he worked full time at GE, but when we took him into the museum upstairs where the uh, in the three hours of the reception i think he spent two in the museum just looking at all the cars but he uh-huh. was in heaven he was in hawk heaven as they say but it's the museum is a real gem it is uh, i mean it's an amazing place uh, the cars that uh, uh, mostly people have donated the uh, beautiful donated. automobiles not mm-hmm. just stored there but it's yours the actually the museum now owns about 80 to 85 percent of the cars that are on wow. exhibit yeah it was about two-thirds when i started there but as time passes on uh people that want to see their maybe their car as a legacy will donate it to the museum and then uh it's always their car so to speak others to enjoy well john a lot of people go through their life and they had a job but maybe not a career you were fortunate you had two careers Mm -hmm. i mean and and not many people can say that but you had two full careers and then there's one little piece of your life that a lot of people don't even know much about and that's your um your bit of being um a rock and roll star with the junkyard band oh yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) i know you've had a lot of fun with that over the years tell how how did that all come about Oh, yeah. Well, the the Junkyard Band, um, four guys that have, uh, five guys that have just been wonderful to me, and I've known them for years and years. First saw them up at, uh, I believe it was Lake James at somebody's cottage, and they were performing out there in the summertime, and they were just doing the, the music that was perfect for my era of the late 50s and into the early 60s and um, we just kind of started following the band you know wherever they were playing that's that's what we do the got invited to some of their private parties and one time they were jamming around and and uh, I sung summertime blues and Dale says you know 
you kind of nailed that. Maybe uh, we could work that into, into the set sometime. So uh, they did. And we just had, especially me, yeah. a ball performing that song uh, off and on uh, throughout the years. And I, I remember one time in particular, it was a, a New Year's Eve. They said, we got a surprise for you tonight. And it was, uh, before I got up there, the uh, lead guitarist, he opened up a, another guitar case and put a, a, an electric guitar on. You know, just strapped it on me. Well, I don't know how to play guitar. Yeah. But it was a good prop. Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> I was wondering you know, where this was I going. Can, I can make people think it was, <coughs> especially since it's not plugged in. <laughs> and, <laughs> we, and I remember it was Chris Schwarzkopf was there, and his wife said to him, I didn't know he could play the guitar. <laughs> okay, where'd they get their name from? The Junkyard Band. The Junkyard Band got their name from um, Pels' Junkyard. Yep. Um, out kind of off of Taylor Street somewhere out in Megan and I saw them at a New Year's Eve gig that they rented out the, uh, it was a hall basically yeah. there. Yeah. And mm -hmm. Well, that's where Amy and I had a reception. Oh, that's Our right. That's right, yeah. The Pels' yeah. Junkyard. Yeah. Yeah. I had... Uh, my 40th birthday party. Though. Oh, well, boy, do we remember that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm kind of hurt a little bit because they never asked the Blues Brothers to well, be there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, well, that's another story. That's another story uh, for another time. If I had known you were going to ask about that, I would have brought my CD along. I got a nice CD uh, that we cut with the band. Oh, yeah? Oh, really? Yeah, really. They... <laughs> they uh, Use a studio, oh, Tom, can't think of his last name right now, uh, out there on nor off of North Clinton. And the uh, band went in there to record a CD, and they laid down all the instrumental stuff on Summertime Blues. And then Dale says to me, Dale Piccanew, their lead front man, he says, uh, John, if you'd like to go in there dub the sound in oh that was what an experience oh, that's cool. you know it's just like being in you know the regular sound studio with the earphones on and this fancy microphone in front of you and everything and we did that and i listened to it and my voice is pretty thin really you know i i would always tell the sound man turn the echo up a little <laughs> bit <you know? laughs> and uh, so Lay down another track right over the top of that one, which enriched it a little bit. And Dale filled in on some of the backing vocals on it. And we just had a ball with that thing. It was a lot of fun. And uh, well, John, it's been, <laughs> it, it, it's been a lot of fun having you here and reminiscing. I'm glad we were able to work this out. We were trying to do this last month, and weather got in the way. Um, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you being a good mentor to me um, in my early part of my teaching career. Um, a lot of times I wasn't sure about what I was doing at times. I'd go in and talk to you, and you'd give me good advice uh, how to handle situations, um, just a lot of things that 
that I needed as a young teacher. So I appreciate um, you guiding me and getting me kind of started my career. I know you were on the interviewing team that hired me, and also thank you for that. Uh-huh. Well, you're, both you guys were just a delight to work with all, all through. And uh, I think we helped each other out a lot. We had each other's backs a lot. You aren't kidding. Uh, I know the math department was superlative, always. And uh, I think our we had a good department there. In fact, Hell yeah. I think the year after I left, they won the state award for the best uh, program. And then I think uh, as a reward for that, why well, the next year they shut the program down. Yeah. One of my things I always laugh about when I think about working with you is you told me one day, I knew you were going to be a good teacher because when you were a student, do <laughs> you remember this? <laughs> Somebody carved into the side of one of the lathes, Scott Brown sucks. And so he goes, I knew you were going to be a good teacher. It's <laughs> yeah, well, the sign of a good teacher. <laughs> Got your name written on the wall somewhere or carved into a desk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, similar experience my first year teaching uh, at Fairfield Junior High. Principal comes out, Chuck Hoffman, and says, Mr. Beer Mom would like to see you. And we walked down to uh, the bathroom and walk inside. And on the wall, it said, Mr. Beer Mom sucks. And I, I, I said, I don't know anything about it. He said, no, congratulations. They said, Mr. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, now's the time in the program where we give our shout-outs. And I'm going to give my shout-out this week to my son, Reed. He's um, found a niche. Um, Found a career. He started out as a substitute teacher in Indianapolis Public Schools. Wasn't really sure if he was just trying to find something to do. And one day he got a sub job at the Excel Center, which is a charter school for adults going back to get their college diploma. That turned into a long-term sub job, which he kind of found his passion. Uh, he followed all the steps that the state of Indiana required to get a charter school license and now he's a full-time te teacher teaching english making a difference in the lives of a lot of people who are trying to go back and create or fix some things that maybe happened in their life earlier that caused them to drop out of high school and i'm just really super proud of him my shout out this week goes to my grandsons elliot and liam it's their birthday weekend elliot's birthday was yesterday and liam's on monday so um they're kind of a big part of my life not kind of they are uh happy birthday boys and uh love you and love you zach also my shout out uh if i may i could use two uh sure the late homer buzzard who was my uh shop teacher at abbott junior high that uh, really kind of took me under his wing um I went to Ward School for the first six years and then over to Abbott Junior High, which uh, also had an elementary school attached. So when I got there, I felt, you know, like uprooted, and everybody else already had their own social thing going uh, because they were already Abbott students. But uh, Mr. Buzzard took me under his wing, and... Uh, I had a really good experience in industrial arts there. And then my second shout-out would be to the late Bob Edwards, 
uh, Northside Department Head of Industrial Arts uh, when I got there, and uh, he was really helpful to me and to all the other teachers in our department as well as students. Well, great. Thanks, John. And that concludes this episode of the Big Desk Podcast, the podcast by teachers, for teachers, anybody ever had a teacher. You can follow us on our Facebook page, uh, the Big Desk Podcast, or iTunes or Google Play. Until next time, this is Scott Brown and Dave Beerbaum.